to share, but it's been surreal to think that we have been through three weeks of 24-7 unending worship, prayer, scripture reading. Thanks, Dave. We're going on four weeks now of since an invitation to accommodate God. And I'm telling you, there's last week I tried my best to just introduce people to some of the things that have happened. I mean, daily, daily around the clock, salvations, baptisms, healings, heart restoration, fresh hunger, as well as, you know, severe challenges to depart issues. There's Many who have been challenged intensely, and they're frustrated by it. There's, there's individuals coming from dozens of different churches around New England and beyond. Last Sunday, we had people represented from every single state in New England. The source of this unprecedented fruit is a manifest presence of God that's calling hearts to himself. Doesn't matter if you're saved or unsaved, God is drawing hearts still. There's an increasing hunger in hearts throughout the globe, and that's what we're seeing. That's why people are coming. You know, it started with this this statement from God, I am here. And, And this, I think it's worth breaking down a little bit because, sure, he's always here. But I'm talking about the manifest presence, which means God decides to turn the light bulb of the unseen realm on. And he's here. The clincher in all this was the implication that he was waiting for us since Repentance Sunday. You know, Steve's comment after Repentance Sunday was this. He said, Sean, are we going to, what are we going to do now? Because like, a year ago, for those of you who don't know, we had like eight hours, and it just the line would not end of people coming to repent for what they had done. I mean, everything from theft to fornication to adultery, all kinds of things. We and, and this was all ages, old, young. And Steve said, you know, how can we go back to normal? This was like an outrageous move of God. And I said, well, I I don't really know what to tell you. I mean, we didn't do anything out of the ordinary. God just showed up, right? And that's a really important thing to understand. We, We didn't understand what it would look like to do something different. Then Asbury. Asbury gave a glimpse of this desire of God in God's heart that I want to draw men to myself. I want to draw people to myself. And so you had hundreds of students just crying out to God, unending, and people flying in from all over the the world because they heard that God was showing up. And, And again, this is that manifestation of God, the invisible coming visible. And so... In between that first and second week, right between, right before the 
week leading up to this I am here thing, I was a little troubled because I started feeling like, did we miss it? You know, like, because when God said, I'm here, Sean, it was implying like, I've been here since those, that powerful move on Repentance Sunday. I've just been waiting. Will you accommodate me? And that was, that was a little troubling because I'm, you know, you start asking like, what did we do wrong? And, and God, I, you know, I remember asking him, I'm, I'm like, did we miss it? Did we make a mistake? And he never answered my question. He just asked, will you accommodate me? And I knew right away it was a piercing request. You know, we understand hospitality. Stephanie and I have literally over the years, we've opened our home to hundreds, hundreds. We've, just to give you an idea, in a year we went through three doorknobs. You know, and I went to the expensive brand, Schlage, you know, like, and went to the most expensive I could buy, and they'd still start falling apart. The metal would be worn out from how many times the door would open. It was bizarre. So we've had, like, a lot of people. And we understand the cost of hosting, the cost of community. You know, it takes an, a, an immense amount of energy to be present, to use every minute you can for conversation, spending time, sharing relationship. This is exponential for a God who doesn't slumber or sleep. Think about that. It's 24-7. You know, when you host people like this, things get messy. You feel like you're constantly cleaning dishes, food prep, straightening, making sure people have what they need. Everything is centered around welcoming them, hosting them. That's why many of you, when guests leave, you love them dearly, but you're like, thank God. Right? You know the feeling, right? But this is real when hosting God. When it's a group of people, especially young people, things get broken. You know? I knew from the offset with this question, will you accommodate me? I knew from the offset what was needed. And I struggled for two days with the team because we just said some were saying we don't want to force this and and just decide to do something like this but I in my heart I was struggling with do I we really want to get into this like we really want to get into this commitment I was counting the cost severely because I knew what hospitality was I knew will you accommodate me I knew I was like oh man I I really it was like it wasn't about me. Well, it was about me losing my life. I really started thinking about, like, I felt as though Jesus were in the garden. Like, my father, if it's possible to pass his cup from me. I don't want to lose, like, seeing life's change. Because I know when God shows up in a manifest way, so many things happen. And that is the very thing that numbed me. It was like anesthesia to the yes. Because this was not a blind, oh yeah, whatever, this could be great. I'm like, oh God, this is going to be a sacrifice of my life. I felt like Jesus in the garden. Just and, and then, you know, even in these past two weeks, you know, when he came to his disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, so you men couldn't even keep watch for me for one hour. It's the most painful part of my existence. 
and the ones closest to me are sleeping. I'm telling you, so much comes into light when you have experiences with God. The flesh is, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You know, we've talked about Mary and Martha. We've talked about the woman with the alabaster bottle pouring out priceless oil on feet of Jesus. And we saw what happened to Mary and Martha. Jesus said, do not take this from her. This is Everything good is in what she's doing right now by wasting this, contrary to human wisdom. But I want to just end with this, this challenge here because it's been on my heart just rumbling over and over. And it's this, this whole story about the rich young ruler. I want you to be open because, I mean, this message is mostly for church people, people who have served the Lord for a very long time. You know, like... Several of the leaders have shared this same sentiment, like, like feeling like we had given everything to the Lord, right? We gave out our life. We've sold everything out, all our ambitions, all our dreams, everything we sold out. But yet then, how is it that when he shows up in a manifest way, everything gets turned upside down? We're now learning, like saying, Lord, how do we fit stuff from normal life back into this place of being consumed with with love for you and desire and hunger to just worship you with rich young ruler in verse 17 same chapter of 26 as the woman with the alabaster it's no coincidence here as he was setting out a journey a man ran up to Jesus and knelt before him and asked him good teacher what should I do Good teacher, what should I do? What does this convey? It conveys like respect, honor, like, like this submission, this reverence. It's, it's all goodness. It's all like, like any of you that would be disciples of the Lord. That would be your approach to Jesus, right? What shall I do that I might inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, teacher, I've kept all of these things since a youth. I believe him. I believe he was really saying, I honor you, Lord. I am devout. I've kept all your commandments. And in his mind, he's saying, like, is there anything else I have to do, Lord? Wholeheartedly. I don't believe he felt like there was any issue in his heart. I really feel like he was a sincere individual coming to the Lord saying, I've done all this, Lord. Is there anything else? I mean, how many of you would feel that way? You're doing your best to serve the Lord, consecrate, give your resources, your finances, your gifts, your talent. You've asked these questions, anything I need to do, Lord, right? Looking at him, Jesus showed love to him. Now that alone, right? 
looking at this man, because we've given him bad rap. We've said, this guy's a villain. He's really self-centered. He's not willing to give up. Up to this point, there is nothing negative going on here. There is a man who is sincerely saying, Lord, I've given you everything. Is there, what must I do to receive eternal life? And Jesus showed him love. And said to him, one thing you lack. Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But he was deeply dismayed by these words and went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. The question he asked Jesus one commentary, which I thought was awesome, suggests that behind a facade of security, there was a heart which had lost much of its security. Concerned with the dimensions of his own piety, he had lost his delight in God. With the result, he lacked the approval of God. You know, Jesus' response wasn't intending to shame him by exposing the real depths of the commandments, but is an expression of genuine love for him. The one thing he lacks, listen to this, is the self-sacrificing devotion which characterizes every true follower of Christ. And the one thing that has brought, been brought to light during all this as I've been thinking, I mean, I've woke up in the first thing in the morning and was consumed with this imagery of sacrifice, like laying down my life before him and seeing it burnt up as a pleasing sacrifice. Like a, it was powerful. And all day I just thought sacrifice, sacrifice, not out of some duty, but out of just this genuine love for the Lord. And I want to ask everyone here, like if you were to survey your heart, would you say that in this past week, three weeks, you've given a costly sacrifice to the Lord that is outside of normal? It's just a question. I have to tell you, there's some, some days that in these three weeks that I didn't want to come down. I was home in a nice, comfortable chair watching live stream and just really enjoying the Lord. There's a comfort zone in that. Like the costly sacrifice is, and I've been for four weeks having really severe back pains. Like when I come to this church, it feels like there's a stake driven down my spine. Much of the time, the only time I don't, I've, I've realized is when I'm praying or preaching or something like that. I'm like, this is bizarre. It comes and goes. And all I'm saying is it was a costly sacrifice to get out of there, out of my seat. I was doing good things. I was, but I got up, I got up and I came and what's so important about that? Because if I wouldn't have come, there's certain things that wouldn't have been expressed. 
I wouldn't have been there. I wouldn't have, I would have not met the Lord as I have met him so many times. But it was costly. And so when you pay that cost, the stakes rise. And like you're paying a cost because you love the Lord and you're doing it because you're like, here's my life. Take my life as a living sacrifice. There's an edge that comes on you of of God drawing near to you in a manifest way. I'm saying like, it's intense. And I want you all to consider like, this isn't, this isn't condemnation. It's really a question. Like, have you given a costly sacrifice like the woman with the alabaster? When Jesus shows up and he's manifest and he's saying, will you come? Will you accommodate me? Will you host me? Chapter 26 continues here with the end of this verse. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples about this rich young ruler, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. Jesus responded again and said to them, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished. Can you imagine being his disciples, right? And said to him, then who can be saved? Here's, I've never seen this until this morning. Just this morning, I read this verse and went, oh, God. Looking at them, Jesus said, you know, because camel through an eye of a needle. It's like telling everyone in the church, it's impossible for you to be saved. You're not willing to give the costly sacrifice. You're not willing to lay down everything. And you know, in this visitation, we're all in the place of the rich young ruler. Every single one of us. Some of us might not, might, might not have land and everything like that. It's not the point of what he's after. But he's after something deep in your heart that you might not even see. That's the key here. The rich young ruler, I don't believe he saw anything until Jesus said, oh yeah, man of servants of the Lord for 30 years, I got one simple thing for you. Go and sell everything. Come and follow me. And then when that challenge is posed, ah, what? That's impossible. And that's why in the remaining part of this passage, the disciples were like, I don't even know if we could do that. This is impossible. Who can be saved? Listen to what he says next. First time I ever saw it in my life. Looking at them, Jesus said, with people, it is impossible. But not with God. For all things are possible with God. And I'm telling you, I would not be in this place in life without a supernatural intervention. 
I think I own 14 businesses. I pour myself out. And even those businesses, I do it because I'm like, Lord, guide me, lead me. Should I do this? Should I not? Should I sell this? I'll do, I'll do whatever. I'll just do whatever. Just speak to me clearly. My heart is Jesus. But then he shows up and manifests, right? And my whole life is turned upside down and my eyes are open to realize, whoa, two weeks I just have spent 12 to 18 hours in this place. Just pouring my heart, my adoration, standing in awe of God, what he's doing, weeping, first week is just weeping all day long I'm like I don't know what to do with myself I'm just so undone all in this heartfelt place I I can hardly I just start losing it every time I say things like Lord would you just stay a little bit longer I just love being with you just would you stay in this place a little bit longer And I know, I know theology. I know he's with us always until the ends of the age. Matthew's clear about that. I understand that. But you know what he is not? He is not manifest all the time. Manifest like he shows up and says, watch this. I am going to begin to manifest my nature, my virtue, my miracles, my power, my presence. On a daily basis, around the clock. And I've just found myself coming at the altar and I don't care if anyone's here and I'm just like, Lord, I sure do like having you around. I love you here. And even if you weren't manifest, I would still serve you. If you slayed me, I would still serve you. Like My heart is yours, Lord. But, oh, would you stay a little bit longer and do all the things that you're doing bring people's hearts to the Lord let me be a front row seat spectator of this will you keep having baptisms of people who are just expressing a genuine authentic faith I just sit here and just cry watching people like genuinely authentically just give their lives to the to the Lord. Folks, this isn't like normal. This isn't like life is normal. We've had baptisms here and there and quarterly. But do you realize like this it's cuz God's here manifesting his power and his nature. He's moving on hearts and disrupting apple carts. He's doing all kinds of things. A woman who just dropped her son off at karate across the hall, walks through the door, starts weeping because she encountered the presence of God. I mean, this kind of stuff is extraordinary. It's not normal. People coming in at 10 till midnight and getting saved, giving their hearts to the Lord. Multiple. After all the hoopla in the meetings and everyone starts going home, people come and God starts meeting people because he's 24-7. He's around the clock, touching hearts, drawing hearts to himself.
Yeah. Um, we've had lots of conversations this week with lots of people um, processing through what he's talking about, what's going on, like responding to the dynamic that God is doing something expressly unique from what we would consider the norm and how to respond and how to navigate it. Uh, and there's lots of people having, there's just a whole vast array of different experiences with this. And we've talked about it before, about how like this thing started almost a year ago. And people have been encountering God for that whole time, but it feels like it's climax to this call moment, right? Uh, and talking to, to uh, the Antioch cohort that we do on Thursday nights, we had lots of good conversations about this. And just wondering all the dynamics and the theology and the practicalities of it and everything like that. And there's, um, there's not like a, a robust theology on how to respond when God does something sovereign and supernatural out of the box. It just isn't. Matter of fact, every time in history he seems to do something like this, we call it revival or awakening or outpouring or refreshing or... There's, I'm sure there's all sorts of different words, but the point is no one knows because it's, it's not a systematic theology that you can study and, and understand. It's a sovereign move of God throughout history that people have tried to understand. And because there's no one definition or term, it's because it's a sovereign thing. It's like God, the, the Lord of heaven and earth, the creator of all things, including us, has said, let me do something new. And for some people, especially like heavy fundamentals or something, they're like, oh, it doesn't do anything new. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Once saved, always saved. Blah, blah, blah. I'm saying like each, each stream has their own strengths and their own weaknesses. But the point is, God is not in a box. If you could fully understand God by finding some theology, you're worshiping the wrong God. It's a golden calf that you've made. He does things that look different than anything before. But here's one consistent trend. If you're looking for something throughout history, the God who is omnipresent has always chose to manifest himself in an actual physical presence place throughout history to mark it. When God created the heavens and the earth, he also created a garden. And in that garden, he dwelt. And then he created humans and invited them to dwell with him. And then those humans messed up and he said, you can no longer dwell with me. It was a dwelling place of the Lord. It's filled with priestly language, tabernacle language, temple language. The garden was his temple. When they left, he called them back and he came and dwelt on a mountain. Only one mountain though. This omnipresent God chose to manifestly dwell on a mountain. And he called all his people to that mountain. And then later he called himself, he dwelt in a tabernacle. Not all tabernacles, just one. And he moved with it and he led his people there. And then in a temple. And he moved. And then in the New Testament, that's right, it happens in the New Testament, there's this upper room meeting where the Holy Spirit himself descends and births this thing we call Pentecost. And these people who are hiding in a room, at one point, followers of Christ, the very disciples of Jesus for three years, the closest followers of Christ 
that had ever been alive up until that point were all gathered in a place and were scared. They had devoted their lives to the Lord, so they're already followers of Christ. They were missing something. They had been given the Great Commission. They were missing something. And then God sovereignly did something he hadn't done, and he descended in this upper room with about 120 of his followers gathered there, and he called them to attention, he empowered them, he envisioned them, and then the mission happened. And then the church in Jerusalem was birthed. And the listen, 3,000 people were gathered into the body of Christ in one message. You think that happened because Peter was a great preacher? Or because God had sovereignly decided to visit at that time? His presence was so manifest that people were dropping dead because they were violating it and treating it as if it was a common thing. And God was preserving the fear and the holiness of his sovereign visitation with extreme measures. And from that place, the birth of the church happened. And you read the rest of the New Testament, there's no longer any emphasis on God showing up because the emphasis was at the beginning of Acts. Luke said, guys, this happened. God called his people to attention, empowered them, and watched the fruit. In church history, this has happened so many times post-New Testament writings. So many times. When you read about things where God has visited, you've, most of us have heard of the Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening, but what we don't know is that the Great Awakening happened at the same time in America as it was happening in England through this thing called, a place called Herrenhut with Count Zinzendorf. He was a man who was a young, rich ruler who said yes. <laughs> a young, rich ruler who felt pressed upon his heart by God to give up his title and his call and to use all his resources to found a prayer center that became a, a haven for persecuted believers. And anyway, he was a man, when you read about Zinzendorf, he was consumed with two things, the presence of the Lord and prayer. And those two things led him to be driven to mission. And this was happening around 1730 to 1740 which was also the same time the First Great Awakening was born because a man named John Wesley, who was preaching in, in England, came by and stopped in Heronhut and felt the presence of God there like he'd not felt before. He said, this feels like the most happy place on earth. If I could, I would stay and live here forever. John Wesley said that. And what was unique about this place it was a man had been visited by God and he said, this must remain. And he instituted a 24-7 prayer gathering. And these gatherings started with big crowds and eventually they came down to just one or two people in a room the size of an outhouse, taking hour-long shifts. That was their prayer consistency of accommodating God. And that lasted for 100 years unbroken. We've done three weeks. We're proud of it. God's moving. He's launching something. Okay? They did 100 years unbroken. And it was just one or two people at a time accommodating it. And you're like, wow, that's so impressive. But that wasn't the point. The point was from Heron Hut launched 
the greatest missions movement the world had seen since Acts. For 100 years of prayer unbroken, also for 100 years after that, Wesley planted, the, him and his movement, the Methodist movement, planted a church a day for 100 years. Those two things were hand in hand. Wesley went there, visited, was sparked, touched, ignited, and launched. From this place, Zinzendorf himself pushed missions because that's what the presence of God and prayer drives a man to do. Do you understand? It drives a man to do because it realigns, it repoints and says, you are worthy of it all. And from this place is where that epic historical moment of two young men who decided to sell themselves into slavery to preach the gospel. They had tried to reach the slaves, but couldn't. They were rejected all access because slave owners didn't want slaves having hope. And so they realized the only way we're reaching these people is to sell ourselves into slavery so we can be one of them. They felt the need to become incarnate with the oppressed ones to bring the gospel and freedom. And so they did. And in that prayer movement, they prayed about it for two years. And then they launched. They launched into history. And the last thing they were recorded saying as they left on the boat was, may the lamb receive his reward. And I was studying further. That was Zinzendorf's tagline. Zinzendorf had a banner made with a lamb and blood underneath and the victorious cross behind it. And underneath it said that the lamb who was victorious would receive his reward. In other words, Zinzendorf, the man of vision, vision who had encountered God, instituted this. God showed up in this place. John Wesley came, visited, and said, this is the most happy place on earth. Left and started a missions movement. Zinzendorf, who was instilling the vision of may the lamb receive his reward because that was his motivating factor, became the tagline so that when these two young missionaries, two years after this and started, left, what came out of their mouth was the driving vision statement of this movement that the lamb would receive his reward. That was their motivation. Do you understand? It wasn't that the mission will get done. It wasn't that, oh, the great commission will finally be fulfilled. It wasn't that we can do our jobs well and finally stand before the Lord and receive may well done, good and faithful servant. That wasn't the fuel that drove these guys. The fuel that drove these guys was May the lamb receive his reward. That statement comes from a place of adoration, of sacrificial love, of recognizing how deep and wide the love of God is that he would visit us so sovereignly for however long he does and shift our perspectives and show us all the little things that don't really matter that we thought mattered. And then from that place, whew, 100 years of missions. But not only that, if you look at history, it's not hard to, to see how that tied into the Great Awakening in America. And guess what? It was at a time when secular rationalism was dominating the West. People were stopping their belief in God. Many of the founding fathers of our country were, were moralists because they had stopped believing in the miraculous and the divinity of Christ, and then the Great Awakening came. 
And it was such a fervent revival of religious devotion that it shifted a nation's sec- like descent into tragedy, revived it, and then from there, just a few decades later, we have the birth of America. The birth of America. One of the first nations founded on God. And then that nation quickly descended and God visited with a second great awakening. And the thing that these two things had in common was they started in small, little, unknown, unpopular, unheard of places where God chose to visit. And there were wise shepherds in each of these places that recognized what God was doing and they began to shepherd it. Jonathan Edwards was one of those. He saw this new fervency rising in the youth of his community and this stoic, hardcore, reformed, Calvinist leader recognized what God was doing and shepherded it well and it turned into the outbreak we see in in America called the Great Awakening. Here's one of the things Jonathan Edwards said that I thought was so profound. He was talking and he was just preserving. It wasn't something he said, but this is said. The North, this is what the critics started to saying. Because remember, Jonathan Edwards was a stoic man. He would write out his messages beforehand and then read them from his paper. That's how he preached. So it'd be like, not like what I'm doing, but like just Sean getting up with the message printed out and just reading it right off the page. And then when he was done saying, who wants to respond? Very non-charismatic, very straightforward. And he said this, or the critics said, the Northampton revival featured instances of what critics called enthusiasm. Listen to that. The critics were like, yeah, this revival, it had some instances of enthusiasm. But what supporters believed were signs of the Holy Spirit. Services became more emotional and some people had visions and mystical experiences. Edwards cautiously defended these experiences as long as they led individuals to a greater belief in God's glory rather than in self-glorification. Similar experiences would appear in most of the major revivals of that century. That's what critics from the outside said and described it as. They seem to get very enthusiastic suddenly. Do you know what that means? The contrast was a faith in the living God that had no outward enthusiasm. No one was enthusiastic about the living God or what he was doing. So much so that when God began to move and people started to have some sort of enthusiasm, people were like, this is strange. There seems to be marks of enthusiasm. and emotions are involved and there's signs and even mystical experiences and Jonathan Edwards who I'm telling you in his flesh was dead set against any of that when you read the autobiography of Jonathan Edwards or the complete works I have a copy of it because there was a young man I was mentoring and he was going for his degree at Gordon Conwell and they made him read it and he read it and he determined he hated Jonathan Edwards with all of his heart thought he was a cruel and evil man and gave me his book he said I never want to touch that book again 
because he was reading the life works of Edwards and Edwards is harsh. But when the great awakening hit, this happened. And that man is suddenly saying, I am cautiously defending this because I see the fruit of God. It's Jesus being glorified and not man. These people experiencing these enthusiastic and mystical experiences are only increasing the exaltation and glorification of Jesus. And guys, that's what's been happening here for three straight weeks. I was over there. Sean called me earlier. He's like, if you got anything on your heart, like share it. I'm like, oh, I usually do. Like that's, that's my mode. And I'm over there and we're all just trying to figure out what does God want to do? And we're like feeling a sense of the gospel needs to be proclaimed, the good news. And I'm over there like, yes. And before I came up, I feel very comfortable sharing up here. I'm one of the founding members of this church. Like I've been up here a hundred times. There's no discomfort or awkwardness when I'm up here. And over there, I was just feeling like I was shaking a little bit, like not shaking, like scared, but like that, that like uh, nervous shaking. Like my body was doing that little shaking. Like, and I was like, I don't know if I want to go up and share. I don't know. There's just a new sense of like, man, if you're going to share when God is present, you better be sure it's God. And it's a, it's a sense, it's an awe, it's a reverence that I feel on the inside. It's not a fear like I'm afraid, but it is a real sovereignty sense. Like, don't interrupt God with whatever your thoughts are. You better make sure they're God's thoughts to the best you can. And that is what has shifted and changed where we're like, God, you lead. You lead and it's increased the need to hear from God and to be led from God and to, to discern what the Spirit's doing and saying so that we don't stifle this with our own great ideas and turning things into programs or ideas or trying to theologize about it. Like just make sure it's Christ and Him crucified and Christ is being exalted. Everything else is secondary. You don't have to worry about your theology after that. There is room to work it out. There is room to flesh it out, to messy it out. Okay, we're not in danger of becoming heretics and missing God when our heart's desire is to stand before the Lord and say, lead us. But there is a danger of missing a sovereign move of God that may not happen again in your lifetime. And the things that will keep you from, from being part of this, from experiencing it, are not a lack of, of understanding. It would be a, a sense of criticism, curiosity, choosing to stand back until you understand. Don't do that. Don't do that. Just look around and say, what is the fruit I want to be a part. Imagine if the only fruit was Jesus was consistently being exalted, glorified, worshipped, filled with places of prayer 24-7. And then you were like, oh, I don't know if this is God. Well, what were you doing three weeks ago? Were you questioning worship and prayer, whether it was God or not three weeks ago? No, suddenly... God is doing something sovereign. I understand the concerns. I'm there with you. The concerns of making sure the mission doesn't take second place. But guys, here's the mission. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the mission. How that works out is awesome. The Great Commission tells us how that plays out. 
but it doesn't tell us why it plays out. The great commandment does. That we are to first and foremost love the Lord your God with all your heart and to serve him and to minister to him and to make sure he is on the throne and he is the first fruit and he is the motivation and that the nameless, faceless concept of people who serve for his glory becomes the foundational root of what we're doing. So the challenge is this, guys. You need to search your hearts for all the motivations, all the reasons, and say, if Jesus Christ himself showed up in the flesh, in this place, would you then say, sorry, Jesus, I need to be about the mission, but I can be here Tuesdays between 2 and 4 p.m. to meet with you. It's just not. It's the Mary Martha moment, guys. And we got we to, gotta, like Sean said, we got to shut off the deep thinking and, and hear the words of Jesus saying, he didn't visit Lazarus' family forever. It was a short stay. But while he was there, Mary went right to his feet, said, I'm not moving. This is where I want to be. And Jesus then affirmed and said, while I am here, she has chosen the best thing. And I will not take this from her. I just feel like that's the call, right? And for those of us who know, like, like there's so many people on the spectrum. There's those who are super critical. And there are those who are trying really hard to understand and want to know it because they want it. That's a great place to be. It's a great place to be. But it's also the place of knowing that he is saying, I'm here, so come to me. I'm here, come to me. I want to give you rest from the striving and I want to give you fresh vision, fresh grace, fresh renewing for this thing and I want to realign this place and I want to realign what I'm doing. Is God doing it only here? No, he's not. He's doing it all over the country. Pay attention. Open up your eyes to see. It's not about a physical location, but it is about a representation. Do you understand? And this is an age-old thing where some people have been like, hey, wherever I go, there is the church. Some of you guys are familiar with that idea because, you know, like Christ is in us. So wherever we go, we bring Christ. And the statement that used to be really popular is wherever I go, there is the church because I am the church. And like, no, you're not. You're not the church. You're a part of the church. You've been invited to be a part of Christ's church, his family, his body. But wherever you go, it's not the church. Christ made it clear there needs to be at least two or three right then I'll be there present then I'll be represented in present but wherever you go is not the church just like wherever you go is not where God is present in the context we're talking not his omnipresence but his representative presence he chooses to do that where he chooses to do it when he does and he does that in his church and he does these things throughout history and we're just saying hey something's happening here just look at the fruit Look at the testimonies. Ask, come and just avail yourself to that and just be a part. Come and serve the Lord because the body and the family you're a part of is clearly doing this with fervor or enthusiasm. And just be a part. I, I, I really believe that being a part takes a little bit of soaking where you're here long enough to see the fruit and turn the brain off, turn the, turn the questions off, and just say, God, if you're here, I want you. That's it. 
If you're here, I want you. And I am going to worship you right now because you are worthy. And when you get to that place of just saying, I'm worshiping because you're worthy, because you're worthy, that's when God responds. Draw near to me, I'll draw near to you, he tells us. He responds to hunger. And that's some of the people we were talking to. It's like, this is what I think it is, right? It's hard because we want to question and we want to understand. But I'm saying, just stop doing that and try this. Try just availing yourself to it. Try just coming and worshiping because he's worthy and because you're hungry and soaking it. That's it. If the Lord revived 50 people in this place, instead of having 50,000 people pass through, that would be of greater value in my eyes. Do you understand? For God to have an outpost of, of revived people to go on mission, John Wesley was a single man. And he launched something because he went to where God had been moving, was inspired, initiated, and said, man, this needs to, I forget the quote. He said, this is the happiest place. And then his prayer, because I forget it, I'm gonna read it, give me a second. He wrote, this is what he said. He said, in 1738, John Wesley visited this happy place, as he called it, and was so impressed that he commented in his journal, I would gladly have spent my life here. Oh, when shall this Christianity cover the earth as waters cover the sea? That was John Wesley's deep cry and prayer after experiencing Hut. Just one small out of the place little village on a, a former baron's land where people were praying and a couple of times at a part. He went there and his spirit recognized something deep. Oh, what a place I would live here forever. And then his prayer and cry was, Lord, when will this type of Christianity cover the earth as the waters cover the sea? What type of Christianity was he talking about? A small company wholly devoted to ministering and serving the Lord through prayer, fasting, worship, and mission. Anyway, we firmly believe that's what God is doing here. He's calling us to attention. He's aligning us. He's instilling this so that our prayer would be, Lord, when will this type of Christianity fill the earth? And then the next expression is, here am I, Lord, send me. that's just the challenge guys that we would step up to be a part of this and just begin to see what God's doing and say I don't want to miss it whatever it takes right get right with God if that's where you're at right set back the, the questions and the concerns recognize Jesus being exalted and give yourself to that for a season okay don't neglect the things that God has called you to do your marriages should stay intact they should stay good healthy your children should be being loved ministered and taken care of but man how about this? Your children see parents who are newly devoted to a fervent worship of the Lord. That's the greatest service you can do for them. And your neighbors and your co-workers as well. I'll share some other times some of the fruit I'm seeing from it in my own life. I'm talking about hard decisions being made and sacrifice and having to have hard conversations that I thought would just be really devastating and awful. And then they're writing back like, man, I've never met a person who could make such decisions like this. I was like, man, that's an, that's an accolade I don't deserve. 
I didn't share with them any of the, the embarrassing backstory of it. They're just seeing the end of it. But God is moving and shifting and producing, and I think a great witness will come from this if we give ourselves to it. A people wholly devoted to the Lord.